0: Father in heaven, great to be here on this beautiful and literally absolutely beautiful morning here in Colorado, all of that white just covering the trees and the grass and the ground, and Father, that pond today was so beautiful, I just had to stop and take a picture. Father, you are such a great painter. You're continually painting sunsets and landscapes and skies and clouds, and Father, we look at the world around us and we discern your creativity. We see your eternal power and Godhead, as Paul said in Romans chapter 1. So, Father, now as we continue our journey with Jesus, and that's how it feels, Father. It feels like we're, we're on that northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, and, and we're journeying here and there and being received in some places and rejected in others. And, Father, just help us to enter into that experience not just with our imagination, but with our emotions and with our spirit, that, Father, we might be transformed, not just informed, but transformed, is our prayer in Jesus' name. Let everyone say, Amen. All right, here we go. Chapter 42 of DA with DA. Uh, It's a little cold in the room, so I've got my jacket on. If it warms up, then I'll take the jacket off. Um, Okay, so I want to start by saying this chapter... Chapter 42, titled The True Sign, this is, I actually wrote it down, this is classic Ellen White writing, excellent historical and biblical exposition combined with forthright and fearless application. That's this chapter. I mean, this chapter is so, so wonderfully representative of Ellen White's writing. She does a great job in treating the text, addressing the text, talking about the historical, cultural nuances of the different places, the different circumstances, moving through the text of Scripture, but then that searching application. She's not afraid to call a spade a spade and to invite the reader, not just to observe Jesus like we might observe a piece of art or a painting or a sculpture or something, but to be transformed by Jesus. And in this chapter, because it's a chapter that ends with hypocrisy she turns that spotlight from just, you know, sort of a biblical historical appreciation of the person of Jesus to what's happening in your heart? What's happening in your soul? Has the leaven of the Pharisees crept into your life? And uh, it's searching and it's penetrating and we're going to get there, okay? So this chapter, again, is kind of divided a little bit as several of the chapters have been into two parts. And we start off in the northern area of the Sea of Galilee, and then moving down, skirting the lake into Decapolis. And Jesus, again, is going to feed a large number of people with just a few loaves and fishes, right? So this is Matthew chapter 15, and that just happened, if I'm not mistaken, in Matthew chapter 14, right? Wasn't it just Matthew chapter 14 that we had the first feeding of the 5,000, or the feeding of the large multitude? Let's look here. Yeah, correct. So that's just Matthew chapter 14. Now we're in 15, and I'm torn about whether or not to read the Matthew account or the Markan account, but I'm going to read Matthew's account. It's a little more familiar to me. And uh, Matthew chapter 15, beginning in verse 29. So basically what we're going to do is we're going to read the last, oh, 10 verses of chapter 15, and then we'll read the first 12 verses of chapter 16. Okay, y'all ready? Here we go. Jesus departed from there, that is from the area in and around Phoenicia, because remember he's gone Syro-Phoenicia. so he's, he's traveled from Capernaum up north to the hill country, and then now he's leaving there, right? Remember, he went there for one miracle, the miracle that we talked about yesterday, the healing of the Syro-Phoenician woman's daughter, incredible, and planting those little seeds in the minds of the disciples that the work that God is doing, the work that Messiah is doing in the world is not just a work for... The, the people of Galilee and Jerusalem and Judea, for the Jewish people, it's a work that's for the world, right? And their minds were still so prejudiced, and she talks about that here again today, how the mind of the disciples were so prejudiced because of the, the larger culture and context in which they lived, and old prejudices die hard. So Jesus is now going to travel, uh, skirting the lake, as we mentioned already, and uh, that's where we're picking up the story here. So Jesus departed from there, skirted the Sea of Galilee, and went up on the mountain and sat down there. And I just wanna say, I have a deep resonance with Jesus on this. Several times now we've been told that Jesus went up on a mountain. He went up on a mountain. And as an avid lover of mountains and of rock climbing, I have this in common with Jesus and Moses and Elijah, right? Many of the great Bible characters loved to be on the tops of mountains. Reminds me of one of my all-time favorite quotations, from John Muir, who famously said, The mountains are calling, and I must go. Right? So Jesus goes up on a mountain here, verse 30. It says, Then great multitudes came to him, having with them the lame, the blind, the mute, the maimed, and many others, and laid them down at Jesus' feet and healed them. And we would be remiss if we didn't know. That's the safest place to be, at the feet of Jesus. Jesus. Right? That's where you want to be, is at the feet of Jesus. That's where Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, was, at the feet of Jesus. The bleeding woman, at the feet of Jesus. The Syrophoenician woman, at the feet of Jesus. And now all of these people that were unwell, diseased, where are they? At the feet of Jesus. And here's the great thing when you go to the feet of Jesus, you don't leave the same person. That's a key. When you go to the feet of Jesus, when you come up, you are not the same person. And we can do that every single day. I did it just this morning. You can do it every single day, and not just every day, but as often as you want. Jesus is accessible and available and approachable. Okay, so they laid them down at the feet of Jesus, and of course, he healed them. Verse 31, so the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speaking, and the maimed made whole, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Key, don't miss this. You might just read that and think, oh, well, that's nice, the God of Israel. It's a little sort of platitude. It's a descriptor. No. Why is it significant that they're glorifying the God of Israel? Because these are all Gentiles. Jesus is in an area of largely, you know, non-Jewish population. And so yesterday, it was just a single non-Jewish woman, the Syrophoenician woman. Now, all of these people talk about upsetting to the disciples' prejudices and the Jewish prejudices Heathen people are coming indiscriminately to Jesus, enthusiastically to Jesus, and Jesus is just healing them. And so they glorify the God of Israel, and we've mentioned before, as we talked about yesterday, in the ancient world, this sort of crossover that we're accustomed to today because of the World Wide Web and international travel and all of that was much less pronounced. People kind of stick, stuck to themselves, their own towns, their own cultures, their own religions, and they were far more insular. Right. In the ancient world, if you were born, say, in some village, you would probably, the average person would probably not travel more than about 20 or 25 miles radius out from your hometown in your whole life. Right. I've been to like approaching 50 countries. Many of you have been all over the world. Right. This is, this would have been unthinkable and unheard of. And so that insularity created a sense of sort of ownership, like proprietary ownership of your religion, your culture, your deities. And then as a consequence of that, a distrust for others, a distrust for them, the people on that side of the river, that side of the mountain, that side of the lake, different people, right? And so now when you have people crossing over because Jesus is meeting needs and not just Jewish needs, but everybody's needs. And so when it says they glorified the God of Israel, the point here is not just this nice little platitude, a nice little add-on. No, these people are saying, the God of Israel is the true God. He's better than our God. In other words, what's happening here, and this is so cool, is the conquest of Canaan. I want to say that again. What Jesus is doing here in Phoenicia and in Decapolis is the conquest of Canaan, and you want to see something so cool. Ellen White understood this, by the way. You want to see something so cool. I'll go back to Matthew in just a second, but I don't want to forget this. On page... 474 of the types and symbols, 406 of Desire of Ages. You could miss this so easily. I mean, anybody could miss this. But check this out. When she's describing the Jews' request for a sign, show us a sign, show us a sign, Ellen White does a remarkable and subtle, nuanced thing. I'm going to read it to you. Now, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, this is the paragraph that begins, now the Pharisees and Sadducees, again, page 406 in the original. Check this out. Now, the Pharisees and Sadducees came to Christ asking for a sign, Watch what she does. When in the days of Joshua... Joshua? Why just throw Joshua in there? Watch. When in the days of Joshua, Israel went out to battle with the Canaanites at Beth Haron, the sun had stood still at the leader's command until victory was gained, and many similar wonders had been manifest in their history. Some such sign was demanded of Jesus. Friends. Friends. Friends, this is just a subtle, wonderful way that demonstrates Ellen White's conversancy with biblical theology. Check this out. She goes to the story of Joshua. Why? Why just randomly drop Joshua in there? There were hundreds, hundreds and thousands of miracles in the Old Testament that could have been, well, maybe thousands is too much, but hundreds of miracles that she could have just said, well, on the days of, in the days of Elijah on Mount Carmel, she could have quoted that, or she could have talked about the slaying of Goliath or any number of wonderful events that happened, but she talks about Joshua. Why? Because Joshua was, of course, the one that received the baton from the hand of Moses and led the children of Israel into the Canaan land. By the way, there's a great lesson in that. I'll just say this briefly, and if you get it, you get it. If you don't, that's okay. Moses, as a symbol of the law, could not take the people into the promised land he could only get them to the borders of the promised land. He had to hand the baton over to Joshua, Yeshua, which is the same name as Jesus, and Joshua brought them into the promised land. Here's the takeaway. The law cannot get us into the promised land. The law can only get us to the borders of the promised land, but it's Jesus that takes us in to heaven. Come on now, that's hot. So here's the point. Why does she go to Joshua? Because what Jesus is doing here is conquering Canaan. But he's not conquering Canaan with swords and with spears and with military might. He's conquering Canaan with love and mercy and forgiveness and healing. Ellen White knew what was going on here, right? It's absolutely incredible. Jesus is Israel. He's doing the very thing that God had intentioned and commissioned for the descendants of Abraham to do. I mean, friends... I'm just on fire here. That's the very thing we talked about yesterday. And that Abrahamic promise, going back to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, the importance of that cannot be overstated. We've mentioned this again and again in DA with DA. You can tell the whole story of Scripture in three passages. Genesis 12, Matthew 1, Galatians 3. In those three passages of Scripture, you can tell the whole trajectory of the story of Scripture And it revolves around God making and keeping a promise to Abraham and his descendants, and then keeping that promise in Christ. Come on. So Jesus shows up here, and he's conquering Canaan, right? But not by bringing death, but by bringing life. Oh, man, it's so beautiful. Okay, we're never going to get through this. Okay, so then they glorified the God of Israel. All of that was just a little commentary on that little phrase. The significance of that phrase cannot be overstated in the context here. Verse 32. Now Jesus called his disciples to himself and said, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. There was no Whole Foods. There was no Publix. There was no Albertsons or Safeway. If you were away from your home and you were away from your food stores and you're out in the wilderness... I mean, Jesus' preaching and Jesus' personality and and healing was so amazing. People were like, no, 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 this is once in a lifetime. I don't care if I haven't eaten. It also shows us that in the ancient world, food security was much lower than it is today, right? Like when you get a little hungry or I get a little hungry, most of us are like, oh, I wonder what's in the fridge or I'll go to the pantry and grab a snack. Food security in these days, like going a day or two without a meal would not have been unusual for a great many people like, oh, well, that was just a part of life. It's just, yeah, yeah, we haven't eaten for a few days, but but hopefully we'll find some food. And Jesus is worried about their temporal necessities. And so he says, no, I can't. I can't just send them away. They've been with me for three days. It's my fault, fault in air quotes, that they haven't eaten. So I got an idea. Let's feed them. And so then the disciples said to him, slow to learn, slow to learn. Where could we get enough bread in the wilderness to feed, to fill such a great multitude? Because it hasn't crossed their mind that Jesus could do again what he did in Matthew chapter 14, because those were Jewish people. And remember the tremendous significance of Jesus feeding the 5,000 because it had all of this manna, Moses, Old Testament significance. It doesn't cross their mind because of their prejudice. Key. Because of their prejudice that Jesus is going to do the same thing here. I mean, these are heathen. Right, 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 the bread thing, the manna thing. And so um, here again, here we go. Here's the sequel Verse 34, Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Oh, just seven and a few fish, Jesus. Yeah, not enough to feed this large multitude. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. And the reason for that was, obviously, so that they wouldn't stampede one another trying to get the food and somebody could be injured. One of the infirmed or one of the children. So Jesus, okay, sit down. Everybody sit down, sit down. And the same thing happens. It's like a rerun. And he took the seven loaves and the fish and gave thanks broke them, gave to the, to the disciples, and the disciples gave to the multitude. We've seen this movie before, right? Exact same thing. Now, I imagine that the disciples were a little less enthusiastic. I mean, maybe, I don't know, in my mind's eye, because it was super cool when they did it for the Jews, but now they're disoriented, they're uncomfortable, they want to get back to their familiar area, their familiar smells and sights and sounds. They're in this area that many of them had perhaps never been to before, and they don't like it. Surrounded by people that are not their people. And so you can just see them distributing. The people are amazed, just as the Jews had been amazed um, not long before. Verse 37, so they all ate and were filled and took up seven large baskets full of the fragments that were left. And I've wondered, is there a significance between the fact that there was 12 the first time and seven this time? I mean, 12 is certainly a very important number in Judaism, you had the 12 tribes of Israel and 12 disciples. They took up 12 baskets. And then here's seven. So if you have an idea about that, uh, put it in the comments. If you put it up right now, I, I won't be able to see it. But I'd love to hear any ideas that you have about that because I've wondered, is there some significance here? I'm sure there might be. Um, verse 38, now when those who, now those who wait were 4,000 men plus women and children, And they sent away the multitude, and he sent away the multitude, got into a boat, and came to the region of Magdala. So this is where he's sailing across the Sea of Galilee, coming back into Galilee. So let's just pause there. So in the first bit of this chapter, it deals with this section, and then we'll go back to Matthew chapter 16. Um, I've already made the primary point that I want to make here, and that is that Jesus was indiscriminately, unbiasedly healing these people because... Everybody is uniquely and wonderfully made in the image of God. There is, in fact, my good friend Elise, who was just with us a few days ago, sent me a really cool article that she wrote um, that I'm going to use in the week of prayer that I'm doing next week at Mile High Academy. And it's on this idea that there is no such thing as the average mind. And it's such a great idea because we can fall prey, especially in this comparative culture in which we live, to think, Oh, she's smarter than I am, or he's more talented than I am. And we, we have this sort of gradation, like, oh, oh, she's a 10, but I'm only a 6, and he's an 8, but I'm only a 5, or whatever. And the idea here is, is that everybody is uniquely and wonderfully made in the image of God. And the Apostle Paul says those that compare themselves among themselves are not wise. And she wrote, didn't write this article, but she sent me another interesting article called, Not the Law of Averages, but the Flaw of Averages. What a cool what a cool turn of phrase, right? The Flaw of Averages. The idea that, the idea that there's a, that an average person. There is no average person. Everybody is uniquely wonderful with that genetic inheritance that they've received from their parents and then the unique life experiences that they've had. Every person is infinitely, uniquely, wonderfully, irreplaceably valuable to God. And yes, that includes you. It includes me. It includes you. And so I just love the idea here that that Jesus, people are coming to Jesus, and he's not saying, oh, are they Jews? Are they pious Jews? He's just indiscriminately, unbiasedly healing people, ministering to people, loving people. Okay? Okay. Um, It says he healed them all, and she says as heathen as they were, which I really like. We're back to our word pressing here. It says through the day pressing eagerly to hear the words of Christ. That's a word that we encountered quite a little bit over the last dozen or so chapters as Jesus' popularity was increasing. Now we've encountered that hiccup there in Capernaum with his speech in John 6, so the popularity is going down a little bit, but the heathen don't know about that, right? The people of Decapolis don't know about that, so they're pressing to Jesus, Right? They want to be in his presence, and those that are unwell are casting themselves at the feet of Jesus, and they're being healed. Absolutely incredible. Then Ellen White does this very interesting thing that she's been doing over the last several chapters, and she uses the word purposefully, I believe strategically, unbelief. Have you noticed that? The word unbelief. Let me just read you the sentence here. It says, again, the disciples revealed their unbelief, their unbelief. She's using this word in purposeful contrast to the answer in John chapter six, where the people met Jesus and said, what works must we do that we may work the work of God? And remember, Jesus said, this is the work of God that you believe on him whom he has sent. That's the work of God, to believe on me as Messiah, as messenger from Almighty. And so you have this belief, belief, belief. In fact, in at least three of the last three, but I think four or four of four or five of five of the last chapters, she's made this point about belief, 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 and then in purposeful contrast, she uses this unbelief, unbelief, and she says it here, and it occurs several times in this um, chapter. I'll, I'll highlight them when we go across them. Um, then she says, uh, "This is I'm on page four seventy three, four hundred five of the original." She says these were Gentiles and heathen. Um, Jewish prejudice was still strong in the hearts of the disciples. Jewish prejudice was still strong in the hearts of the disciples. And remember, as we talked about yesterday, Jesus has taken them on this field trip into Phoenicia and then now into the area around Decapolis to begin to break down some of those biases and those prejudices to prepare them for their work that will be as described by Luke in the book of Acts, right? Remember when Jesus said, you will be witnesses to me. This is Acts chapter one, verse eight. And this becomes the template for the whole book of Acts, by the way. Jesus says, speaking to his disciples just before his ascension, you will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Okay, so Jesus is here prepping them. He knows that these seeds that are being planted right now by his kind actions to non-Jewish peoples, these seeds will not bear fruit within the next few days or weeks or months, these are seeds that are going to bear fruit years from now. Years from now, when the Holy Spirit's finally poured out after the resurrection and the ascension, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus, again, being very strategic. She says in the last sentence there that that all of the heathen departed with glad and grateful hearts. And I thought, oh, I like that. That's a great way to describe what I want the condition of my heart to be. Glad and grateful, glad and grateful. Yeah, Lord Jesus, make me a glad, a glad gladvenist, right? Somebody who's glad and grateful. Um, Okay, then he crosses the lake to Magdala and now he's back in Galilee and she says this great line here, his spirit had been refreshed by the confiding trust of the Syrophoenician woman. And I just love the idea and I want you to feel this When we respond to God in faith and in sincerity, this brings joy and happiness to the heart of God. I want you to feel that. There are versions of God, and in fact, I've been meeting some of the coolest Christian people lately. Um, The day before yesterday when I was in the barbershop, I met this lovely young couple, I think I might have mentioned this, the son and girlfriend of the uh, lovely lady that gave me a haircut, Carla, thank you for the beautiful haircut, um, and they're like worship leaders in their local um, church, uh, Sunday church, and they they just nicest people, Frankie and Corey. And I said, man, I want to come and hear your their music leaders there. So I want to come and hear your music. I want to come to their church. I think their church is called Passionate Life. And then just yesterday, I went to the bank, and I wasn't in my bank. I was in somebody else's bank. I had to go in and cash a check. And uh, the bank teller, Ryan, was the was the youth pastor also at his local church called Freedom Fellowship. And he was the nicest guy. And I just thought, man, God has his people. God has his people everywhere. And we need to not have these similar prejudices that the disciples had, that if people aren't members of our tribe, our church, our denomination, our community, well, then they're not one of us. No, there is no us and them only us. Okay? Love that point. So, um, but anyway, back to the point I was going to say, there are some versions of God out there that have God as this sort of austere, unaffected, almost indifferent God who nothing can be added to him. He cannot experience joy. By the way, this is an old Greek idea. It's referred to In theological circles as the impassibility of God, not impassible in the sense that you can't pass him or get around him, but without passion, without emotion. And I just love the idea that Jesus is described here as having been refreshed, having enjoyed the faith, the persistent, determined faith of the Syrophoenician woman. And friends, God responds similarly to your faith. It brings him joy. And I want you to feel that. Just let that wash over you right now. Your faith, your sincerity, your service to others brings the heart of God great joy. Um, So now she's making the point about how he had been in Galilee where a lot of great things had happened, but he'd kind of been chased out um, of Capernaum. He'd gone on this little, you know, field trip through the, you know, less Jewish lands or the heathen lands. He's now come back into Galilee and she makes this point He was met with contemptuous unbelief. Ooh, there's our word unbelief again. She's purposefully using that word in contrast with belief. But not just any ordinary unbelief, contemptuous unbelief. The unbelief of derision and hatred and and despising. Contemptuous unbelief. And now we're introduced to kind of a unique, not unique, but a new, a novel idea in the Gospels up to this point, I think this is the first time we're introduced to it, and that is a deputation or a coming together of not just the Pharisees, which have resisted Jesus, right, because Jesus is eating with unwashed hands, and he's hanging out with all the wrong people. We've been over this quite a little bit, but now the Sadducees are getting in on the Jesus hating game, and remarkably, unexpectedly, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are coming together. They hate one another, but... Like the old saying says, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And I mentioned yesterday for reasons that I wasn't planning on, reasons that are not entirely clear, I spent a little bit of time talking about politics and politicians. And uh, I was like pretty fired up about it because I, I see some people in the Christian world allowing themselves to be defined by their political affiliations or their political ideologies and not by the infinitely more important gospel identity and gospel ideology, and yet right here in this paragraph, she says exactly what I was saying yesterday about politicians. I actually wrote politicians in the margin, and this is the paragraph that begins with a deputation of Pharisees had been joined. This is page 405 of the original, 473 of Types and Symbols. Listen to this. A deputation of Pharisees had been joined by representatives from the rich and lordly Sadducees. Okay, this is an unexpected alliance. The party of the priests, the skeptics and aristocracy of the nation, these two sects had been bitter enemies. Now listen to this. The Sadducees courted the favor of the ruling power in order to maintain their position and authority. And I just wrote, that's that's politicians. That's political thinking. I'm going to do whatever I have to do. I'm gonna make whatever compromises I have to make in order to stay in power. Because what matters most is that I get to keep my position. And that, unfortunately, tragically, is the motivation of a high percentage of politicians, not just in modern times, but historically. Right? Again, in the words of George MacDonald, it is not in the nature of politics that the best of men should be elected because the best of men don't want to govern their fellow men. Or the best of women don't want to govern their fellow women. Right? Like. It's not kind of the way it works, but these Sadducees hated the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the religious traditionalists, nationalists, and the Sadducees are kind of the, if you can't beat them, join them. They're the aristocracy, and they're the ones that have curried favor with Rome. They view the Pharisees as kind of backwater, traditionalist, fundamentalist, and they are on opposite ends of the Jewish ideological spectrum, and social spectrum, really, but they come together because The Pharisees hate Jesus for the reasons that we've described. The Sadducees hate Jesus because Jesus is now becoming a force to be reckoned with and a force that could at least theoretically threaten the the delicate balance that they have in Palestine in order to keep peace with, with the Romans, right? Because the Romans are kind of counting on the Sadducees and Herod to keep everything running smoothly. Taxes are paid, no riots, no problem. So they're there to keep the peace. And Jesus is a threat to that peace. For the Pharisees, Jesus is a threat to their position and their theology and their broken understanding of the Old Testament. To the Sadducees, Jesus is a threat to their position and to their power. So even though they hate one another and regard one another mutually as sellouts, you know, looking at those people are sellouts, no, those people are sellouts, Jesus is a threat to both, and so the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Um, So she says the Pharisees and Sadducees unite against Christ, and they come and they ask for a sign, and now I'm going to go read, beginning in Matthew chapter 16, because we've come to that section. Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. Then the Pharisees and Sadducees came and, testing him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. This is not the first time that this request has been made. Show us a sign. Show us a sign. By what authority do you do these things? Show us a sign. Prove to us. Verse 2. He answered and said, when it is evening, you say, oh, look, it's fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites. Second time he's dropped the H word here. Um, You know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and no sign shall be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Jesus has already said this or alluded to this back in Matthew chapter 12, that there's some affinity, some similarity between Jesus' mission and Jonah's mission, between what happened to Jesus and what happened to Jonah. And I'm only gonna say, if you haven't already watched my seven-part series on the book of Jonah, you can watch that at the Kingscliff YouTube channel, it's titled "In the Felly of a Bish." In the Felly of a Bish, it's an, I think, excellent series. I've preached it several times in different places. I preach it in Norway, and I've preached it a couple other times as well. Actually, no, I think I only preach it those two times. I preach it in Kingscliff and in Norway. But it's a great series, walking through the four chapters of the Book of Jonah. And one of the things that we continually do in that series is note the overlap, the similarities between the mission of Jonah. And the mission of Jesus, both by way of similarity and by way of contrast. And so Jesus here says, you want a sign? They're not going to be a sign except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. Now when his disciples had come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. Then Jesus said to them, take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves saying, hey, maybe he's mad because we forgot to bring bread. That's why he said don't bring the leaven. Maybe he meant don't buy bread from Pharisees and Sadducees. I mean, just whatever. They're a little slow, but we probably would have been slow too um, in that situation. But Jesus, aware of it, said, oh, you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves? Because you have brought no bread. Did you not understand and remember the five loaves and the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up? Or the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets you took up? Right? How is it that you do not understand that I speak not to you concerning bread, but beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Right? I love Jesus is such a great teacher here. He's like, come on, fellas. I know how to make a sandwich. Okay? I can make a sandwich for thousands of people out of just a few loaves and fishes. That's not what I'm talking about here. Um, Verse 12, then they understood that he did not tell them, to beware of the leaven of bread, but the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And so we transition from the first half of this chapter is about Jesus' ministry there in and around Decapolis and the healing of all the non-Jewish people that were brought to him and the sign. It really revolves around sign, 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 sign. And I love, again, the fact that she quotes Joshua as the illustration of the sign. Of course she does, because Joshua's job was to make the conquest of Canaan and Jesus Boom! It's making the conquest of Canaan, not by bringing death, but by bringing life. Solo Scriptura 07 says, fish sandwiches, that's right. And even though I'm a vegetarian, you better believe, if Jesus is serving fish sandwiches, I'm eating them. I'm eating them. I would have eaten that food, no problem. I know there's a lot of good Adventists that wouldn't have. They would have been like, no, 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 I'll just take the bread, please. And, and do you have any... Um, veggie links. No, I would have been like, give me the fish sandwich. I'll take two. In fact, okay, here we go. Um, so now this question about a sign, give us a sign. And Jesus says, yes, there will be a sign. And Ellen White does such a marvelous, marvelous job of describing what the sign is and isn't is and isn't. Okay. This is incredible. She says, uh, I'm reading in the paragraph that begins now, the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to Christ, and I'm going to read the last part of that. But these signs were not what the Jews needed. No mere external evidence could benefit them. What they needed was not intellectual enlightenment, but spiritual renovation. Ah, not just information, but transformation, renovation. I like the fact that Ellen White uses that word renovation. Remember, it wasn't that long ago when we were with Ty and one of our DA with DAs. And she used that phrase, it's on page 384 of the types and symbols. Sorry, I don't know, I can just quickly look it up. She says that uh, God is creating a renovated race. Remember that, Ty, and I noted that point, the word renovate means to make new. 331 of the original. A renovated race. And she says what was needed here was not just enlightenment or amusement or entertainment. What was needed was spiritual renovation. Friends, that's what I need. I need spiritual renovation. I need to be made new. I pray with the psalmist of old, create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within within me. That new heart, that new spirit is renovation. That's what the word means, to make new again. Um, Jesus says, hypocrites, you can you know your weather patterns. You're able to reason from cause to effect. When I see this, that means this. When I see this, that means that. You can reason from cause to effect. How come you can't reason from cause to effect here? The signs are happening. They're already, you've been surrounded by signs. And then she says, I love this, Christ's own words. So here's here's her point that she's going to make. I'll tell you what her point is, and then we'll we'll go through it. We'll walk through the trees. We'll fly over the top, then we'll walk through the trees. Her point is that the words of Jesus and the character of Jesus confirmed by the Holy Spirit, that's it, the words of Jesus, the content of what he was saying, The character of Jesus, the way that he conducted himself, and the infilling and convicting power of the Holy Spirit, that all of this is true. We talked about that yesterday. Not just the external witness, but the internal witness that the Holy Spirit gives that says, this is true. This is true. And if you resist this man, and if you resist what's being said here, you're resisting the truth. You're resisting God himself, right? This gets back to Matthew chapter 12, the unpardonable sin. And so that is the sign, the words are the sign. The character is the sign. The internal witness of the Holy Spirit is the sign. That's what she says. Listen to this. Christ's own words spoken with the power of the Holy Spirit that convicted, of, convicted them of sin were the sign. That's the sign. God's word is the sign. Okay? God's works in nature and in the life of an individual, the renovation of people, is the sign. Uh, In fact, I'm just gonna jump over very quickly because we're on this point here. This is on the next page, the paragraph that begins, when the message of truth is presented in our day. Listen to this. She says, but the gospel is not without a sign of its divine origin. Is it not a miracle that we can break from the bondage of Satan? She asks rhetorically. The answer is, of course, that's a miracle. Enmity against Satan is not natural to the human heart. It is implanted by the grace of God, when one who has been controlled by a stubborn, wayward will is set free and yields himself wholeheartedly, that's key, wholeheartedly, not with hypocrisy, not with a divided spirit, but wholeheartedly to the drawing of God's heavenly agencies, a miracle is wrought. So also when a man or a woman has been under strong delusion, comes to understand moral truth, every time a soul is converted and learns to love God, oh, I love that phrase, We have to learn to love God. We have to be in the school. We have to be educated. It takes time to learn. It takes time to learn how to ride a unicycle. It takes time to learn how to rock climb. It takes time to learn how to do a roll in a kayak. It takes time to learn how to play the clarinet. It takes time to learn how to love God. That's the journey of a lifetime, right? The thief on the cross began to learn right in that moment. And as long as you're in that trajectory of learning, you're going to be just fine. You're going to be saved. You are going to be on Jacob's ladder when God finally pulls it up into heaven, either at your death or at the second coming of Jesus. The key is to stay in school, friends. Stay in school. Don't be a fool. Stay in school, right? Because the school is learning how to love Christ. Learning how to love God. It doesn't come natural to the human heart. We have to learn it. We have to unlearn things and we have to learn things. Remember back when Jesus gave the parable about the new wine and the new wineskins? He said this in Luke chapter 5, No man having drunk old wine immediately desires the new because he thinks the old is better. Well, question. Can somebody who's an alcoholic, who's a drunk, who's accustomed to the old fermented wine, can they come to like the pure, fresh refreshing juice of the grape? Yes, they can. But it takes time. It takes time to change old habits and old tastes and old inclinations. So I love the fact that she uses that phrase there. Every time a soul is converted and learns to... Converted, past tense, and learns to love God, present tense, and keep his commandments, the promise of God is fulfilled. I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you. Ezekiel 36, 26, the great... Ezekiel promise of a new heart. The change in human hearts, the transformation of human characters is a miracle that reveals, and I love this, an ever living Savior. Friends, feel that right there. Feel that. An ever living Savior. That's what happened to me yesterday when Jesus woke me up at 240 in the morning. He's like, just want you to know, David, I'm still alive, I'm still on the throne, and I still love you, and here's a couple answers to prayer that you've been really wanting. Bam, bam, an ever-living Savior. And so, so the miracle, the sign is the words of Jesus, the character of Jesus, and the transformation of the human heart. These are signs. And then Jesus says, hey, look, the sign is going to be the sign of the prophet Jonah. And then he describes, and we did this back in Matthew chapter 12. Remember Matthew 12, where Jesus says, a greater than the temple is here, a greater than Solomon is here, a greater than Jonah is here. I'm greater than the temple and the priests that minister in the temple. I'm greater than the greatest king in Israel's history. And I'm greater than the most successful prophet in Israel's Old Testament history. King, priest, prophet. I'm greater than all of that. That's what Jesus is saying. It's remarkable. And he points specifically to Jonah. And a greater than Jonah is here is saying, there was incredible repentance at the preaching of Jonah. And there will be incredible repentance at my preaching. It's not coming to everyone right now, but it's coming to many. And after my resurrection, which is also, right, very much like Jonah. Three, and Jesus will make that point. Three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, in the felly of a bish, as I called my series. And the Son of Man will be three days in the heart of the earth. So there's these incredible ties. And if you again, if you haven't already, go back and watch that seven-part series on the book of Jonah. It's amazing. I would say the book of Jonah is one of the most interesting and the, maybe the single most well organized book in the entire Bible. I'm not kidding. Second only, maybe, to the book of Revelation. The structure and the literary organization, the poetic organization of the book of Jonah is incredible. It's divine, frankly. It's divine. Okay, so she talks about Jonah. Um, then she says, and I thought this was so interesting Jesus' healings are obviously being dismissed here, right? This is very important. Jesus' healings are being dismissed. Because all of these healings are clearly signs. They're clearly miracles, but they want a different kind of a sign. They want a sun stand still in the middle of the sky kind of sign. They want the Red Sea parting kind of a sign. Jesus knows that that whole relentless pursuit of signs, a religion that's corroborated and and built upon signs, doesn't work. Because they've already been dismissive of a number of signs that have been presented plainly to them. Remember when he cleansed the temple? What sign... Do you show us that you have authority to do this? Well, the sign was the authority. The sign was the fact that you fled in fear under conviction because the Holy Spirit said to you, this guy is on fire and don't get in his way. That's the sign. Jesus is the sign. In fact, this is so awesome. The paragraph that begins, oh, one quick point I was going to make. One of the reasons that the Pharisees were so dismissive of the signs of Jesus is that they were healings of mercy toward people that the Pharisees didn't think deserved mercy. That is so fascinating. They were dismissive of the signs because Jesus was so merciful, so kind, but they thought that these these signs were, were too magnanimous. She actually says that she thought that a, she actually says that the disciples thought he was a little too magnanimous with some people, a little too freely giving of his grace and his healing power, particularly to those that and, and then she says in this chapter she says that the disciples actually thought that Jesus probably should have perform some kind of a miracle to satiate, the, to slake the thirst for signs that the Pharisees and the Sadducees had. But Jesus was wiser than that. He knew that to give them a sign, would, it would just be dismissed anyway, because the reason they wanted signs was not because they were sincere seekers for truth, but because they were hypocrites, and they were trying to mask their own desire for self-exaltation in being contemptuous of Jesus, being a hater. That's what we would say in today's day and age, a hater. I had an experience yesterday. I'll be very brief and very vague about it. But I just want to say that don't be a hater. And I'm not just talking about of me. I I have zero desire to come to my own defense, but I don't like it when I see friends of mine that are being hated upon for foolishness. I, I just think it just hurts my heart that Christian people are not outside of and better than the prevailing culture of hatred and judgmentalism and cancellation and political partisanship. It's like, there should be, we should be so above this. Our citizenship is in heaven. And rather than finding a reason to be dismissive of someone or unkind to someone or contemptuous of someone, why not find a reason to be affirming of them, to be kind to them, to grow them. If you really want to move somebody, if you think that somebody's at fault or in error, if you really want to move them from you know A to B and B to C, you don't do that by being contemptuous and judgmental and unkind, by being a hater. You do that by coming alongside of people and ministering to them, by discipling them, by drawing close to them. Right? Like, anyway. So that just really, it's, it's unfortunate that that's the world that we live in. But this, I'll come back to that in just a second. I want to say this. That paragraph that begins, that which led the Jews to reject the Savior's work. I'll return back to that celebrityism thing in just a bit and then we'll wrap it up. Um, I want to read that paragraph. That which led the Jews to reject the Savior's work was the highest evidence of his divine character. Interesting. The greatest significance of his miracles is seen in the fact that they were for the blessing of humanity. Then she uses that phrase again in the very next paragraph. The highest evidence. Two times she says it. And both times she says it's the character. Look at this. The highest evidence that he came from God is that his life revealed the character of God. And then she says, such a life is the greatest of all miracles. This is what I mean when I say that Jesus is uninventable. No one could have written this story. The uninventability of Jesus is such that no human being has the capacity to have written this story in this way. Right? Human history is filled with stories of men that thought they could ascend to the position of the divine, the position of the deity, the position of God, but only one story of the God who became a man and behaved like this, right? This isn't Iron Man, this isn't Captain America, this isn't Spider-Man. Those are the stories that we write, right? The stories that human beings write largely have heroes that we all are like, yeah, that's the hero. Jesus is the anti-hero. This is why people didn't like him. They were like, this guy's not a very good Messiah. This guy doesn't know how to do Messiah stuff. Yeah, we want a David, we want a Solomon, we want a Saul. This guy's a terrible Messiah, he was the anti-hero. We now look back retrospectively with the, benefit, the hindsight, with the benefit of hindsight of the resurrection and the outpouring of the spirit and, and the history of the Christian faith, and we're like, whoa, that guy was the hero. But it's amazing how many Christians still reduce the biblical story. The biblical story, they reduce it down to just kind of like a superhero tale where basically what God is going to do is just show up as a divine superhero and kick the, kick the butt of all of the bad guys. Now, Jesus kicked the butt of all the bad guys by hanging on a cross. Not by not by imposing violence on people, but by having violence imposed on him. It's incredible. He's the anti-hero. This is the story that no one could have written. And I love what Ellen White says. There's such a life is the greatest of all miracles. Agree. Agree. And then she basically says, look, the reason that Jesus didn't work a miracle, even though the disciples thought that he should have worked some kind of a sign, Jesus knew that no... No sign would have satisfied their their hypocritical curiosity. She says, He does not impart power to vindicate ourselves or to satisfy the demands of unbelief. Okay, so Jesus isn't going to work a sign just to keep people happy. Next page. um, Oh, she says this line again. A consistent life is a great miracle. Signs. um, Then he starts to talk about the leaven. uh, She uses the word unbelief again. She uses it, I think, five times in this chapter. Then she starts to talk about the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which she says in in the mind of the Jews, leaven came to symbolize sin because leaven had to be gotten out of the house in preparation for Passover, right? And the reason there, of course, is that the leaven takes time to rise. And at the Passover, the nation of Israel had to be, they couldn't be waiting for anything. They couldn't be grabbing anything. They had to be ready at a moment's notice to get out and to follow the leading of God. And so leaven came to be a symbol of sin, And um, he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Okay, the doctrine and the hypocrisy of the uh, Pharisees and the Sadducees is what Jesus is saying to be uh, weary of. Um, She says that the, the, the disciples did not discern the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Of course they didn't. They still thought at some level that they were super religious people. Maybe wrong about a few things, but very religious. And Jesus is like, no, no, actually, their religion is perfectly calculated for self exaltation. And this thought occurred to me. Friends, check this out. Do you want to know who the Pharisees were and the scribes, especially the Pharisees, but to some degree the Sadducees? Do you want to know who they were in their day? They were the celebrities, they were the stars. They were the social media influencers that's who they were they were celebrities they were the people that everybody looked to that's what's happening on instagram and social media and all these you know so called influencers you influence with your six pack abs and your bikini body and your you know audacious acts okay whatever right jesus was the real influencer here these people were the celebrities and when they saw jesus popularity going up They realized that their popularity was going down, right? So Jesus' popularity is going up. Their popularity is going down. And they don't want to lose followers. They don't want to lose likes. They don't want to lose influence. They're celebrities. And listen to this paragraph. This is page 409 of the original, 477 of the types and symbols. The hypocrisy of the Pharisees was the product of self-seeking. The hypocrisy of the Pharisees was the product of self-seeking. Listen to the next sentence. The glorification of themselves was the object of their lives. Okay, okay, real talk here. Is there any sentence more perfectly calculated to capture the ethos of this time in terms of social media and celebrityism? Listen to that sentence again and just think, just imagine that somebody wrote this and they're describing people who are famous for being famous, right? People who long to be influencers on social media, people who long to have a big platform Right, YouTubers or whatever. I'm not, I'm not being a hater here and being dismissive of all these people, but the point is popularity. The point is eyes on me. All eyes on me. I'm the guy. I'm the one. Right. So listen to this. The glorification of themselves was the object of their lives. Look at me, everyone. Check me out. I'm awesome. I'm In the case of the Pharisees, spiritual, I'm religious, I'm pious, I'm different, I'm holy. In the case of today, I'm muscular. I've got the right body shape that a man or a woman should have. Check me out. I'm wearing the right clothes. Check me out. Look at the location I'm in. Don't you wish you were here? You do wish you were here. Look at this thing. By the way, I'm not saying that for your friends and your family and people that love you, you know, if your life is amazing, then put it up there. But we all know that a high percentage of what's going on here is exactly what's being described. The glorification of themselves was the object of their lives, and she then says they were this blinded them. Well, what did it blind them to? Well, it blinded them to two things, and the same thing is happening today. It blinded them to the character of Jesus and the urgency of Jesus, and it blinded them to their own sinfulness. This is key. You see, friends, Phariseeism will either lead to one of two outcomes. Phariseeism will necessarily lead to one of two outcomes. Phariseeism, legalism, self-glorification will lead to one of two outcomes. Either self-deception, where you convince yourself that you're something that you are actually not. You deceive yourself. The Bible, especially the New Testament, has a lot to say about self-deception. Don't do the work of Satan. Satan's job is to deceive you. When you deceive yourself, you're doing the very thing that Satan is enlisted to do. He can actually take a, you know, a a fallen angel off of you and put it on somebody else because you're doing the work that he's trying to do. You deceive yourself, he's like, oh, that's easy. So, so Phariseeism, legalism will either cause you to self-deceive, think that you're something that you are not, or it will lead you to despair. Despair. When you finally have the realization, you wake up from your narcissistic nightmare and realize I'm not what I thought I was. I'm nothing. I'm a hypocrite. And Satan will either elevate you, elevate you, elevate you, elevate you, so you'll self-deceive, or he'll crush you and crush you and say you're worth nothing. You're garbage. This is the deception of Satan. It's the Blaise Pascal thing. Idolatry teaches us either that we're equal with God or that we're below the level of the brute beasts. You're neither. You're a human being made in the image of God. You are uniquely and wonderfully valuable, irreplaceably valuable, but you're not all that. And you're not worthless in nothing, right? Both of these are lies. I have a sermon that I I preach about this. And um, I'm just deeply passionate about the idea that we are realists. See, this is the great thing about being a Christian. Christians are realists. We're realists about the environment. We're realists about politics. We're realists about our own selves. We're realists about religion. We're realists about the limits of healthful living. Yeah, I want to live healthfully too, but I'm a realist. I'm a realist. I know that I could live a perfectly healthy life and still get some form of cancer or die in a car accident. See, friends, Christians should be realists above all else because we're tapping into reality as God defines it. And who better to define reality than God? See, the, 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 the Pharisees, just to sort of tie these two things together here, the Pharisees and the scribes say, give us a sign Because they've created their own false narrative and reality. And they want Jesus to play in their reality. And Jesus is like, no, that's not how it works. Your reality is self-deception. Your reality is hypocrisy. Your reality is celebrityism. Your reality is self-exaltation. Your reality is death. It leads to death because the wages of sin is death. Friends, I'm going to tell you something right now. Sin is its own punishment. Write that down and never forget it. Sin is is its own punishment. Sin has an inbuilt self-destructive quality. Sin has an inbuilt obsolescence. God does not have to come externally and impose in a contrived manner a punishment on sin in some arbitrary fashion. The problem with sin is that sin causes death. This is what James says. Sin, when it is fully mature, it brings forth death. Sin is its own punishment, and What are we going to do? Are we going to play in our false view of reality where we convince ourselves that we're something that we're not, leading either to self-deception or to total despair, or should we play in God's version of reality? Should we live in God's version of reality where we say, hey, wait a minute, God is the one who's uniquely qualified to define what reality is and isn't. He doesn't perform miracles and tricks. You want to know if God is real? You want to know if God is real? And I know that many of you on here, of course, are believers and you love Jesus very much, but... But for non-believers who probably aren't on here, but for non-believers, if they want to know that God is real, here's what they need to do. They need to open up the Bible, they need to read the gospel accounts of Jesus, and they just need to pray this prayer. God in heaven, if this guy is who he claims to be, reveal that to me in my soul. Show me what's true. Reveal to me what's true. And if they do that with sincerity of heart and of purpose, God will do what God does. He will work a miracle. He will reveal himself to them. Now, whether or not they choose to accept that revelation of that self-disclosure of God to them by his spirit in their heart, that's up to them. But God will disclose himself. Jesus is the light that lights every man that comes into the world, right? The grace of God that brings salvation, Paul says in Titus, has appeared to every man, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and something else in this present world. I forgot what the something else is. Godly, soberly, righteously, and godly. And listen to that, to live soberly. Think about that. Do you know what it means to live soberly? It means to live in reality. Right? When you're... Got a phone call there I had to say no to. When you're drunk, when you're inebriated, you're not living in reality. You're living in a, in a convoluted, inebriated state created in your brain by the molecule of alcohol or some other drug. That's not reality. Christians are realists. We're the greatest of all realists. We should be realistic about ourselves. We should be realistic about the world. We should be realistic about the promises of politicians. We should be realistic about money. We should be realistic about all of the things. Because who better to give us access to reality than God, who is himself ultimate reality. And so I just love this idea that that this whole celebrity culture and this self-exaltation, it's all It's all built on a house of cards. It's built on sand, and we should not fall prey to it. If God wants to give you a platform, praise the Lord. Use that platform for telling people about Jesus. Okay, I love it when people that have a big, I have no problem with people having large platforms. I think it's great. I want Christians to have huge platforms, but not for the purposes of self-aggrandizement and self-exaltation, but for the purpose of making Jesus famous. I have some friends who are Christians who have very large platforms, and I'm so happy for the platforms they have. When I hear an athlete or an actor, which is extremely rare, but when I hear or a politician or a wealthy person speak about their relationship with Jesus, I'm like, yes. Father, increase their tribe, increase their influence, grow their platform. I would love to have a larger platform, not because I think David Asherick is awesome. David Ashrick's just an ordinary guy, very much like you right? Ordinary and extraordinary, made extraordinary by the grace of God. But I would love to have a larger platform because that gives me more opportunity to tell people about Jesus. And to the degree that God can trust me with that platform, he will bless me with it. And to the degree that you and I cannot be trusted with that platform, we will not be blessed with it. God loves us. He's too much a friend to give us that which we cannot bear. There's a thought. Okay, so I want to just close on this. This is the second to the last paragraph. She says, um, the one that begins, among the followers of our Lord. I love this sentence here. How often our service to Christ, our communion with one another, is marred by the secret desire to exalt self. How ready the thought of self-elevation and the longing for human approval. Could she be describing social media any more clearly? The longing for human approval. And I have a sermon that I've preached on this called The Gospel Tribe Please go find it. It's on YouTube. It's on Storyline. Go listen to it. And I talk about the deception of social media, and I really do need to wrap this up. Um, Then I love, 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 love that last paragraph. This sentence is incredible. The religion of Christ is sincerity itself, as contrasted with hypocrisy. The religion of Christ is sincerity itself. Sincerity itself. This is why the... This is why the religious leaders could not understand the movements or the teachings of Jesus. They couldn't understand him because they were actuated by totally different motives than Jesus was actuated by. They they couldn't understand. So when they come and they say things like, why, why does your master eat with these people? Why does your master not why, why? They didn't understand. Their motives were not his motives. Their goals were not his goals. Their reality was not his reality. And I want to be actuated. I want a life of sincerity, authenticity. I want the person that my wife sees to be the person that you see. Now, not the naked person, obviously. That's not what I mean. But like in my character, I don't want my children to be like, oh yeah, my dad, he, he, was, a, he was a pastor, but he didn't pastor us very well. I want my sons to be my biggest fans. And, and not fans like, oh, in an idolatrous way, but I want my sons to see living Christianity in my life. With all of the humility and the repentance and the confession, as well as the kindness and the mercy and the and the enthusiasm, I don't want to be something to you and then not something to them. I want my life to be characterized by consistency, by sincerity. I want all of the leaven of the Pharisees out of my life, and that's what this chapter is about. That's what this chapter is about. And I thought it was awesome. I thought it was an incredible. Oh, my word! What was your word? Quickly, 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 quickly. What was your word? Let me tell you mine. Let me see what yours was first. Let's see if anybody got the same word I got. Let me see if you got my word. Okay, so I've got the word um, waiting here. uh, The whole authentic package. Unleavened. Yep, 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 yep. Unleavened, I said leavened or leaven. But unleavened is actually a better word. I'm going to add. I'm going to add the U there. Get my pens. Yeah, I like that better. I had leaven, but unleavened is a better word. Good for you. Unleavened. There it is. Unleavened. That's what I want to be. I want to be sincere. Let's see what else we got transformation, renovation. Ooh, great word. Newness, transformation, influenced. Yet, leaven, create, unleavened. Malisa says, agree. Renovation, says Katie, great word. That was my word, leaven. Yeah, I just changed mine to unleavened. I like that better. Because I'm trying to stay remember with positive words. I've had I don't think I've had any negative words yet. I did have, I don't know, not many. Impartation, says Karen. I like it. Influence. Uh, Melka says, Levin is mentioned eight times. Yeah, I believe that. It just it's the it's the central point there. Changed. Oh, great word. Humility, great word. Sincerity. Oh, Anne Marie Freeman 7. Great one because she says there in that last sentence of the last paragraph that sincerity is the mark of a true Christian life. So you did life, is that you, Hannah? Implanted. Oh, that's good. Implanted, like the 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 leaven is implanted and it works. Okay, that's good. Because interestingly, Jesus has used leaven in Matthew chapter 13, which we didn't cover, because that's covered in Christ object lessons, which maybe we'll do at some point in the future. She She uses leaven in a positive way, or I should say Jesus uses leaven in a positive way, right? He says the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman hides inside of bread. So yeah, good. Blind, follower, renovation. Okay, these are all great words. And quickly the rubric, and uh, then I gotta get out of here. Okay, here we go. You guys ready? I got a huge day ahead of me today. Here we go. What was the point of this chapter? I wrote, to reveal and contrast the true nature of heavenly signs and hypocritical selfishness to, com- to reveal and to contrast the true nature of heavenly signs because the signs were the words and the character and the internal confirmation of those words by the Holy Spirit and then also hypocritical selfishness. It's leaven. It gets inside of us and we don't even know. It's leading us either to self-exaltation and self-deception or to despair when we wake up one day and say, I've been living a lie. This isn't who I am. By the way, that's one of the reasons I think, well, anyway, anyway, I gotta, be, I gotta be brief here. Person. What do we learn about the person of God here? That Jesus' life and character is the greatest of all miracles. I wrote that. Oh, Scott says, what's the seven-part series you mentioned on Jonah? It's called In the Felly of a Bish. It's a play on the In the Belly of a Fish. So In the felly, F-E-L-L-Y, of a Bish. It's a little play on words. You'll understand what it means when you watch the series. If you just type that in, Asherik Felly or Felly of a Bish, or you just go to the Kingscliff YouTube channel, you'll find it. Seven-part series on the book of Jonah. Let me know what you think of it. Oh, Cassandra, thank you for putting the link up there. Um, prayer. Okay, you ready? Have you guys ever heard the saying, get the lead out? Hey, get the lead out. You know, like, hurry up, get the lead out. How about get the leaven out? Is that cheesy enough for you? Get the leaven out. God, purify and elevate not just my external religiosity, but especially my internal motivations. Give me that new heart that you promised in Ezekiel chapter 36. Get the leaven out. Father, get the leaven out. And then finally, practice. How can we practice this chapter? I wrote to lean into the world, or excuse me, not the world, the word. We can lean into the world in service like Jesus did in Decapolis, but to lean into the word, the life of Jesus in study and in meditation, and then follow that up with proclamation like the mute deaf man that went and told everybody and the demoniacs of Decapolis that went and told everybody what great things God had done. So I want to take in the life of Jesus and study and in meditation, in Scripture. I want to be a realist. And then I want to go tell the world what's really going on. I want to be a proclaimer. That's, that's my practice, right? I want to be a Christian, a true Christian in my innermost soul. All right, beloved, please pray for me. I've got a big day today and tomorrow. And, um... Yeah, I'd really appreciate your prayers that everything goes the way that I want. And hopefully, I've got a little something-something in store for you tomorrow. So pray about that too. I don't know when it'll be tomorrow. It could be either in the morning or in the evening. It just depends on how my potential surprise works out. All right, let me pray with you. Father in heaven, I want to thank you for all these beautiful people. And Lord, I cannot wait until we can do the real DA with DA in the new heaven and the new earth, when we are spending the rest of eternity with the desire of ages, him whose life was a miracle itself, revealing the words and the works of the inner workings of the heart of God, your heart. Father, what a beautiful heart it is. And we see the way that you relate to people, the humble, and it's just such a beautiful picture in Christ. And then we see the way that you rebuke sharply hypocrisy Not because you hate those people, but because you love them and you want to save them. And hypocrisy will eventually work its way through our whole life and and turn us into shells of ourselves. Father, we don't want to be whited sepulchers. We don't want to be whited tombs. Father, take the leaven out of us and may we be transformed by the uninventable, beautiful, incomparable life of the man Jesus Jesus Christ, the desire of nations, is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen and amen and amen.